0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events.
1: Well, why don't we make a start because time is whizzing by. Good evening, everybody. Um, So great to see you all here. My name is Jim Minifee. I'm from the Grattan Institute where I run the Productivity Growth Program. It's great to see some familiar faces and a lot of new ones as well for what I'm Expecting to be a really uh, fascinating discussion, and thank you to uh, our guests, who I'll introduce in just a moment. And first, if I can just very happily acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, and to our hosts, the State Library. It's been a great relationship for us and a great venue. Um, so let me let me now get into into the topic at hand, which is around the vexed issue of innovation all advanced societies struggle with innovation policy and Australia is no exception we've got some real strengths and some real weaknesses and the the origin for tonight's discussion was really this document Australia 2030 prosperity through innovation which was released finished up late last year but released early this year by Innovation and Science Australia which is the best current iteration of how Australia can respond to some of these these advanced economy, economic policy challenges. And who better to have the discussion than our three panellists tonight? Let me just quickly introduce them. Um, first to my left is Bill Ferris, AC, the chair of Innovation and uh, Science Australia's board. So that is the board that uh, was responsible for producing this document. Welcome Bill and thanks for joining us. Uh, the next along in the middle is Petra Andrin, the CEO of cicada Innovations, um, Australia's only super incubator providing business support to a large collection of advanced advanced technology startups and then, th- and welcome Petra, great to have you here, thanks for joining. And then to Petra's uh, left is Dr. Alan Finkel AO, Australia's Chief Scientist, and also the Deputy Chair of Innovation and Science Australia. Uh, w- what I thought I'd do without going through all of your background, you've all had very interesting uh, careers that are still actively progressing. I wanted to give all of you a bit of a chance to hear about why you're here and what interests you in this in this domain and so bill perhaps if i can start with you and ask well what is innovation and science australia why are you excited about it and what would success look like for isa okay
2: jim uh, firstly thank you very much to the grattan institute for um hosting and making this happen It's very helpful um well isa quicker way of saying innovation and science Australia uh, is an independent statutory authority of the federal government um, with a remit to um, for a couple of things. The main one is to provide independent advice to government, to the uh, cabinet and prime minister Um, and uh, we were tasked as a board and the board is 15 members uh, now down to 13 with a couple of uh, Retirements, but uh, of basically private sector practitioners, venture capitalists, educators, the chief scientist, um, and uh, and uh, I guess I fall into the category of a venture capital, private equity backgrounded person, and was invited to chair this board two years ago. The first remit was to look at the innovation system in Australia as it as it exists, how is it performing or not. And what would you do to turbocharge the performance nationally of our innovation capability by 2030, out to 2030? Remit number one. Remit number two is an ongoing oversight and evaluation role on existing programs. So um, I took that on, that invitation, as I think my fellow board members have, because of a um, a sense of urgency about what needs to be done and a sense of opportunity uh, that it is possible to lift the performance of this country dramatically if we do a few things and our report to which you referred we think is a potential fix uh, with its 30 recommendations if government and stakeholders take it on to really transform the nation over the next 10 to 15 years and um, if if implemented and followed you asked how would what would success look like well to get there have implementation but secondly we we want to see Australia as a place where you finish up with sustainable jobs and growth and therefore a real crack at having a inclusive society um not just a prosperous one for a few We want this to be a sustainable plan for uh, the society as a whole. We think it can be. Uh, And we're prepared to be measured on a number of metrics. But I won't go through them all. Page 99 of the report lists 17 actual metrics against which this plan could be measured and the country's performance be measured against its international competitive countries. And, of course, the starting point for this is the reality we are lagging badly on our innovation competitors around the world, OECD countries and a few others like Israel, Singapore, China etc. So we've got to catch up and we've got
1: to get on with it. Thank you so much Bill. Now Petra, Cicada Beautiful name. I pronounce it cicada, but I think that's the wrong pronunciation. <laughs> I think
3: it depends on if you're from Melbourne or not. I uh, think if you're from okay. Melbourne you say cicada. Yes. But I don't know if that's true. If you're American, you definitely say cicada.
1: So so what is it and what does success look like for it? <laughs>
3: so it's a weird and wonderful beast it's the best way that I can describe it Cicada Innovations is one of Australia's oldest and arguably most successful technology business incubators uh, we've changed a lot throughout the years, um, what we do and I shudder every time I hear the word the word super incubator because it's such an American word and I feel a bit, oh, really, but what it means and it is a word actually in the label, what it means is that we create create and validate our own businesses through highly specialised programs that we then go on to nurture inside the -the state-of-the-art incubator that we have. Uh, And the recipe for success really is the long-term support that we are able to provide to these businesses. Now, deep tech has become a word and unfortunately means something slightly different to everyone in my world when I say that we work with deep tech companies. It means that we work with those companies that are challenging, um, that are tackling really difficult problems. Uh, Another way to look at it is to say that they have a sustainable competitive advantage uh, through something that can't easily be replicated, so oftentimes it's a piece of intellectual property, but it could be something else. We work across industries, so all the way from med tech to um, ag tech to robotics, AI, you name it, but what these businesses have in common is that they take a little bit longer to get to market, but when they do get to market, they have a real impact, and it's really those sorts of businesses um, that have the ability to change the way that we try and solve some of the global issues issues today like climate change, food security, you name it. What I need to mention as well is that this organization, as I said uh, when I started, it's weird and wonderful. It's got a pretty special setup. It's owned by four of Australia's top universities, so University of Sydney, UTS, UNISW and ANU, but we're a private, independent, for-profit organisation. So that means that we, uh, I'm in a unique position because I sit right between um, commercialisation of research, industry uh, and movement of people and NISA to me uh, is so important. I can really tell uh, how actually these initiatives are impacting the industry firsthand because of where I sit. So I'm really excited to be here today and tell you more about it what I think about it
1: great Petra thank you so much as you'll hear one of the big challenges for Australia is precisely around the translation that step from research into commercialization so it's great to have you here now finally Alan you're the chief scientist does that mean you overview that you, you oversee the whole lab how does that work what does success look like for a chief scientist
4: well I can I can answer that uh, little question right up front, I have no line responsibility over the scientists of Australia so the formal challenge or job responsibility for the chief scientist is to advise the Prime Minister, the Minister of Industry Innovation and Science and other ministers where relevant on issues to do with science policy Uh, the second in my contract uh, requirement is to be an advocate within the community to explain where the opportunities are what science and technology can do for us and the third is to to some extent, uh, build uh, science diplomacy bridges with other countries. But the reality is... it's probably different in the hands of each person who's appointed as the chief scientist. So um, it's been interesting because I've got a business background as well as a science background. I've been invited to be involved in things as far ranging as co-chairing with Bill and John Fraser, a review into the research and development tax incentive, and tax is not normally an area where chief scientists are involved, uh, through to a project that I'm doing at the moment for the education ministers around Australia on how to optimize science education, or so-called STEM education, in schools. So
1: it's a huge range of activities. Terrific. Well, again, thank you to all three of you. Let's, just in in the spirit of uh, getting through quite an ambitious agenda, get started on the uh, on the report. Now, Bill, you said in your introductory comments that Australia is not at the top of every ranking. Um, I presume that it varies across rankings, and so how do we fare? ISA has looked at how Australia stacks up. Are there some highlights and lowlights that people ought to be across before we dive into what to do about it? Well, yes,
2: there are. Um, there are a number of. There is not a single. There is a global innovation index, a single attempt to uh, measure a national uh, uh, positioning. Uh, OECD-dominated. Um, Population of countries, and in that index, we're sort of, you know, somewhere below halfway, um, but we have a lot of problems with that index, we think there's some, we won't go into it tonight, but Alan's got an ongoing project to uh, try and point out to the OECD makers of that index, they've got a few things wrong. That said, we do really well in terms of creating the excellence of our knowledge measured by citations and publications uh, you know we rank in the top quartile. in fact we rank sixth out of this list of close to 40 countries that we measure against Um, in terms of original knowledge, citations, publications per million of population way up there. We do not match that excellence in knowledge creation by the excellence in our translation and commercialization thereof and therein lies a big challenge why? mix of reasons you know from the education system right through to how we've motivated and and um, and required research dollars to be allocated to our researchers it was based on the excellence of your knowledge and your publications it had virtually nothing to do with its relevance or importance to the marketplace or to industry that is changing. That is underway, and it's got a lot further to go. Uh, so, um, uh, in terms of things we do well and things we don't do well, we've got we we spend a lot of time looking internally and comparing ourselves externally, and that's why I mentioned this selection of 17 indicators that we have going forward to track ourselves against in terms of government's performance as innovators in terms
1: of how we procure and so on so we can probably get to some of those questions as we touch on those on the way through now my understanding about the private sector performance is that we're rapid adopters early adopters of technology but potentially not as strong at bringing new to world innovations to our markets is that a fair assessment yes right Okay. Can I, yes, add to Bill's
4: short answer? Um, to some extent it's it's what you're looking for. So if you're looking for our success in the what did you call a deep tech field, the very modern rapidly advancing digital technology areas, um, I think your question, Bill's answer, is correct. We're not not even close to being comparable to what you see in uh, the US or in Israel. But there's a lot of innovation across the economy in our traditional industries that is often forgotten. And we've just seen an instance where through your question, and I don't mean this rudely, but, you know, the focus is on the modern high tech in everything that we're talking about. But. I like to talk about the success that BHP and Rio Tinto have had over the years where, uh, between them and Fortescue, they've increased our share of, in percentage terms of iron ore exports in the last 15 years in a worldwide market that's tripled. So the actual total increase in exports is huge in a very, very competitive world. And they've done that through the adoption of really clever technology, innovation. It's the autonomous vehicles, it's the uh, algorithmic algorithmic process control, uh, working with universities like UQ and University of Sydney, working with corporate partners such as Caterpillar and some of the Japanese companies. It's quite staggering what they've done and the result is they can get the iron ore out of the ground less expensively by far than before with Uh, less environmental damage
1: and a better safety profile but we tend to ignore that you could tell a similar story about agriculture which has had decade on decade improvements in productivity with significant inputs from CSIRO and the the rest of the research infrastructure
2: Jim they're great reminders and Alan's right to point that out uh, as he does regularly and I agree with him but uh, looking ahead we can no longer and and, you know once we had the GFC and the slowdown in the investment boom in mining, not the efficiency of our exports still but the slowdown in that and the terms of trade not just falling in our favour again, looking forward to how we drive productivity and innovation does drive productivity but how do we do that going forward it's going to have to be by way of new stuff, commercialising a heap more of our own ideas and inventiveness here in a wider range of industries.
1: Petra, can I ask you, in your domain of research, let's call it research translation and commercialisation, science-based innovation, innovation, how does Australia stack up versus the peers? So when you talk to the heads of like organisations around the world, Hmm. do you see Australia falling significantly short in the kind of conditions that make your type of activity Successful.
3: So the interesting thing is that Australia actually has all of the ingredients to make a real bang in this space. Um, And it really is about bringing bringing things together. It's about collaboration. It sounds very cliche. But um, to give you an example, and um, I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but um, I started doing something. I wanted to get the researchers to come and engage with my startups and my scale-ups. And it was so difficult to get them to come and just have some beer and pizza. They actually have to go. They had to go through um, some intellectual property seminars, etc. But once we started this going, and we started to have these informal meetings where researchers, industry, from from all the way from industry to to startups, could actually meet and. Uh, And convergence of technologies and thoughts, that's when interesting things started to happen. So I'm bringing that up as an example because um, it's so important that movement of people between academia and startups, movement of PhDs. I mean, there's so few PhDs that are actually employed or research that are employed by industry in Australia. That's really what needs to change.
1: Um, Do do we do... Equally, we don't b- equally badly or We are not doing well is. at
3: this and we have all sorts of reports that Bill's already referred to to prove that. But what I'm saying is that its I think it's actually quite easy to fix. That's what I'm trying to say. And yes, I live in a microcosmos and I, yeah, I'm fortunate because I, I have direct access to four universities and I have a critical mass of 400 of the brightest minds in Australia that are working on very interesting technologies in the startup world. So, But what can work on a micro scale should be able to work on a national scale. And what I see work in my my little world i would like to see that working at a at a larger scale so what i'm saying here is that i'm really positive about the potential uh we have everything there we just have a leaky pipeline if that makes sense a leaky innovation pipeline and the leakage comes when it comes to commercialization we've got all the ideas we've got all the research but how do we bring it forward how do we capture the value rather than giving it to some big global corporation and let them get all the value
1: so a question for maybe all of you on the panel from a skeptical standpoint there would be a view that says of course innovation matters to push forward that global technology frontier and to drive our civilization forward but why should a small country with 24 million people not just free ride you can buy all of these things off the shelf someone's going to invent them you can go on to amazon you know you can go on to ebay wherever you can buy all the hardware so why does Australia need to fix its own leaky, leaky pipeline and build its own sophisticated IP production process? Why don't we just become, if you like, off-the-shelf purchasers of all of this good stuff and let somebody else do the inventing? You start, I'd have a heading of security,
2: why you shouldn't do that. I'd have a heading about commerciality, the practicality of it, and a heading under... And uh, culture. Culture. What sort of country do you want? But I've got some ideas on that. But I'll, you, you, Petra, you and Alan go first.
3: Alan, do you want to start? I go first. I'm so upset. I think I kind of have to breathe in and out, I think, to answer this question. I don't want to become a peanut colony. I came to Australia for a reason. Now, look, um, why. Jim you actually said something really good which I like so I'm going to steal it you have to be close to cutting edge to be able to adapt or adopt cutting edge right that's one really important thing the other thing is I do agree that we try to be good at everything and I do think that that's the only criticism or I've got a few but one of the criticism I have with Anissa Report is that we're trying to do a bit too much, we need to focus where are our strengths, where can we be really good, because we can't be good at everything, let's face it we're a small country, having said that there are some things we can become really good at where we can actually become world leaders and we've got a real chance, Uh, but we need to capture value we need to upskill, we need to be uh, in the game Uh, and I don't think that the right thing is to just go and and buy off shelf from uh, the rest of the world, I do think we should be part of it, and uh, looking at all the research and great publications that we've got coming out of our institutions, we have a real chance to be part of it. Why shouldn't we want to? Alan?
4: Some very practical reasons. Um, First of all, if we're going to buy all that technology in, buy everything that we need, we need something to exchange. We need to trade. We need to sell something. And what are we selling? At the moment, we're selling agricultural produce. We're selling exciting tourism opportunities. We're selling a high-tech education, a really advanced education sector. We're selling iron ore and copper. And all of those depend on us having a really innovative approach to everything that we're doing and underpinned by a highly trained workforce so it takes me to the second point unless you're actually um, developing inventing doing research you will see the spiral to incompetence towards incompetence of the capability of your educators and your actual workforce Um, another reason is quality of life Um, what makes life exciting is it having goods Or is it having goods and a purpose and it's definitely the latter in my opinion we all want to do things we all want to be exciting excited we want to be inventing and doing things and feeling that we're uh, making progress Um, and then there are some things of course that can only be done by Australian research take agriculture take our, our minerals exports our energy exports the challenges that we face are unique because of our particular geographical circumstances
1: so there are just so many reasons, right? So off the shelf isn't going to cut it, in your view.
2: Yeah, Jim, you, you you don't you didn't believe it anyway. But under 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 the heading of security, um, you know, whether it's diseases like the Hendra disease, which you know we copped before anybody else, bird flu comes in, or, or or particular vaccines that we need to know that we can not only design but store, and by the way, along the track, maybe come up with the first vaccine against cancer in the world which we did cervical cancer thank you thank you uh, Ian Fraser et al uh or, and or whether it's to do with do you really want to outsource your intelligence your defense intelligence and capabilities and knowledge no um and we've come up with stuff like the NULCA um, decoy, which is spectacular export success now, um, and then under the still under security, I would put environmental issues like, for example, we've surfaced in this report, the Great Barrier Reef. You know, it's our, it's our, um, it's our stuff to to look after and show the world. I think under the culture, you don't. I agree with Alan and Petra's points. I want to be a collaborator. I don't want to be derivative. I want to be a leader and then finally I'd say strengthening what Alan said we wouldn't have solved and come up with the wheat and the, and the cotton breakthroughs massive breakthroughs in agriculture if we hadn't had our research at the cutting edge, nor the mining ones and nor would we have Atlassian or Cochlear or Macquarie Banks uh, performance um, so no
1: <laughs> compelling <laughs>
3: I wonder if anyone uh, subscribes to that. I think they do.
1: And there is a we're, case. We economists in you our didn't darker really mean moments, it, did you? We economists in our darker moments do harbour such thoughts. <laughs> now, Alan, talking of dark moments, sometimes I can't figure out if you're a pessimist or an optimist about this agenda. Uh, 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 uh,
4: uh. So. Uh, it's interesting. I, I can look at these um, four sectors that, or the imperative areas that ISA has um, looked at, and I can look at them as a pessimist. And we'll come to these in the, in the next 20 minutes. I can minutes. look at them as an optimist. And so perhaps, let me just take one. I'll take education. I'll tell you why I'm a pessimist about where we're going, because it's not as good as it was. And I'll tell you why I'm an optimist. Um, I'm a pessimist because the reality is we've taken a vocational education training sector that was actually quite good and pretty much destroyed it to the point that it's much less functional than it used to be. Um, I'm pessimistic because when you look at our school science, numeracy, and literacy results through the international tests, in particular the one called PISA, we're only about the middle of the pack and we're going down. It's not a comfortable place to be. when I look into the school systems and I'm interacting with them a lot I see a lot of complacency. Complacency doesn't drive improvement. Um, I see signals out there that lead to students making bad selections. For example the ATAR encourages young kids advised by their careers advisors to take easier subjects rather than hard subjects so they can maximise their score. And so the ATAR, inadvertently, is doing something bizarre, like encouraging kids who think they might want to do engineering to do either fundamental or middle-level maths instead of advanced maths, so they can get the score that gets them into engineering. Once they get into engineering, they don't have the math skills allow them to do it well so that's depressing and we've eliminated in the last 15 to 20 years prerequisites for mathematics at the university entry level we've eliminated those prerequisites for courses that need mathematics like economics and commerce or science and engineering now I can tell you I'm optimistic for exactly the same reasons I'm optimistic because when I look at the vet sector I can see that there's awareness now in government driven in part by the recommendations that we've made in the ISA report in part by other discussions in part by the current minister that it has to be fixed and I think that through small incremental changes and eventually a large review it will get fixed um, when I look at the Pisa results that 30 seconds ago were depressing me I think well they're not actually as bad as they are because they're not necessarily fit for purpose Um, we've been adding things into our curriculum that are not measured and we've been bumping out the things that are so we now teach digital technologies we teach design we teach computational thinking these are good things for the workforce of the future but they're not picked up by PISA So we need to learn from the ISA report. Bill mentioned the 17 metrics in one page. I think of that as the one-page dashboard. We need a one-page dashboard for measuring education so that we can have more confidence in what we're doing and see with more precision what we have to change. Uh, Complacency, the kind of discussion we're having now, the kind of discussion the government introduced through NISA, but very much what the ISA report is promoting will improve the, the culture of our country and if we can strengthen the innovation culture we'll get past the complacency the complacency by the way it's there for a damn good reason we've had 27 years of continuous recession-free growth it's not as if we're a disaster it's natural that you become complacent I'm a child of you know immigrants and there was no question I had to do law engineering or medicine but now like all of my generation we want our kids to do What is their passion? We want them to follow their passion. And if it's music, it's music. It doesn't have to be one of these professions. So it's a difficult thing to grapple, but I think we can. Um, The ATAR sends the wrong signals, as I said, but that's been tackled through the ISA report and also through uh, the Gonski Review coming up and a special program that I'm doing with government on school industry partnerships and industry recognises the problem. And same with the prerequisites. There's no question. I, I had the privilege of speaking to the collection, collected um, Universities Australia conference delegates, including all the vice chancellors, on Wednesday evening last week. And I called them out on the fact that they have taken away prerequisites for financial considerations. They've lowered the ATAR standards for financial considerations and they agreed with me and they want to do something about it. We have to solve the budgetary considerations, but I think we can So everything I see that's a problem, I believe there's a solution. We've just got to attack it.
1: Well, let's now dive into the report. Now, Bill, it's probably impossible what I'm going to ask you, but could you give a capsule summary of the agenda that you've put forward in the report and then what my ambition is for the quite limited time we've got left is to whiz through at a high level the key points in each of those agenda items and then we're going to open it up for discussion.
2: Okay, well, I mentioned we had a board uh, basically private sector pragmatic people trying to come up with an actionable report for government and uh, it's complex as you can hear already in the conversation, startups to scale-ups to big business to universities, the medical research institutes, to government to people, to international competitors uh, so you've got to watch you don't know, boil the ocean forever on this we came up with in the end five imperatives that guided our report a systems based report and the, fir- the first of those five was what Alan was just talking about if we don't educate our kids for a future workforce and equip them with the right stuff by 2030 we put the pens down on everything else So that's the first one, the education, and that involved the vet sector and so on. The second one was um, looking at industry and business. How do we propel way more high-growth companies in this country? One of the metrics when you look around the world is we don't have as many high-growth homegrown companies yet. It's starting, thanks to people like Petra, uh, and it's on the go. How do we propel that to, to, to provide sustainable jobs growth out there? the third one was looking at government, how do we get a government to be more innovative itself, not just talk about innovation but how can it be a better and smarter innovator in procurement, service delivery etc and we have then the fourth one was about what we just talked about, research development and collaboration to exaggerate the point to make it, traditionally we've had the silos of knowledge creators over here in the universities and we have businesses over here. These guys think they're all nerds and irrelevant and the nerds think business are only interested in next month's profit and what a waste of time. I make the exaggeration to drive a point which is so important we've got to, we've got to fix. So collaboration for more translation and commercialization was the fourth imperative and the fifth one was what do we do about culture? How do you actually get people to Want it to get it to live it. That innovation is not a word to tiptoe around, but an important way of living for this country, for young people, and all people of all ages. So we we have that. That was the fifth construct, and we built under those five, in a sense, thirty recommendations,
1: which we think are a package. Well, let's see whether we can touch just at a high level in each of those five uh, areas as as we go through. So, Alan, if I can ask, just very quickly, you already introduced some of the opportunities and challenges around um, education, and just to make it concrete, are you seeing some gems around the Australian landscape that could be expanded on and used as models where we really are doing things in a smart way, or is it a uniform arena of mediocrity that, uh, that we really need to completely overhaul?
4: No, I, I think it's it's very uneven, but it's changing for the better. So if you went back five years or ten years prior, universities in the R&D space uh, didn't have a lot of interest in working with industry and probably deliberately made it difficult. Um, there was... Money. They saw the money flow coming from international fees and from government, and that was it. Um, that has changed dramatically for universities in the last five years for a number of reasons. Uh, more recently, um, NISA has encouraged commercialization through the, the National Innovation and Science Agenda. The National Innovation Science Agenda, which was the flagship program of the government in 2015, um, has uh, put some pressure on the universities culturally to get out there. But the fact that grant funding hasn't been increasing in the ARC and the NHMRC has meant that the Vice-Chancellors have had to look around and say, around and say, what are we going to do? Where's the right. funding going to come from that we need, the increased research funding? And so they're now quite dramatically more aware of the possibility of industry-funded research and philanthropic research. Funding of universities, the um, ability of, or the success with which universities have been raising money from philanthropy has increased dramatically in the last five years. And same with industry engagement. And then um, that's being um, promoted right now by the kinds of um, commitment to entrepreneurial startups and, and accelerator hubs that we're seeing in many, many of our universities. And one last thing I'd mention um, sometimes removing a blocker is as important of adding is as important as adding a facilitator. You know, you take away a negative 1, mathematically that's a plus 1. You know, minus a negative that's a positive, right? Well, one of the inadvertent negatives that we've had when it comes to university commercialization is the ERA, the Excellence in Research Australia, which for about 10 years is the way the government measures the quality of university research and it's a very very big deal all the universities take it seriously it's administered by the australian research council it is completely focused on excellence through publications in international journals and the citations of those publications and so without intending to do that it causes without intending to it causes the researchers to focus purely on their lab bench research and nothing else and so when a company approaches them they say i don't have time i've got to publish i've got to help my department deliver for our university well one of the things that came out of the nisa the national innovation science agenda in december of 2015 was an instruction to the arc to add a new metric operate in parallel to measure engagement and impact to look at how that research is delivering value for our country and that has gone through a pilot which was very successful and this year it rolls out. In anticipation of that you're seeing the universities already change their culture because they will be measured not just by publications but by all sorts of things including how much industry funded research they uh, income they bring in, how many spin-outs they have, how many patents
1: they acquire. And Petra, do you see that rubber hitting the road as it were in your domain?
3: I certainly do, yes. The kind of programs that we're currently running in the med-tech and the ag-tech space where we take um, university IP and we take that through a program and we try and incorporate a business post that three months program that wouldn't have been possible because it wouldn't have been the deal flow to be able to do that just two years ago uh, so I definitely definitely see a big change in how the universities want to engage and how they want to commercialize uh, I also think that the universities are treated a bit unfairly I think we're a bit unfair on them because we keep saying that it's so difficult to deal with them and oh so much red tape I actually think that they've come through I think there's more of a problem now on the industry side I actually think that uh, Industry needs to change its culture and try and understand uh, universities more, and try and actually do not just use universities for quick and dirty R&D, but actually look at long-term projects that have a win-win uh, benefit. And I also think that um, we do need to look at uh, making it easier for SMEs to engage with universities as well. Uh, they will contribute to smaller contracts, but if you get an SME or a scale-up company, uh, you potentially will have a very long-term engagement. Uh,
1: we will
3: finish collecting material from our back story in 20
1: minutes. There you go. <laughs> Was
4: something you said?
3: Must have been something I said. <laughs> 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 must have definitely been something I said at least
4: we know we're in, we are in a library
3: <laughs> we we are in a library and we're about needs- to be kicked out I think but all in all so what I'm trying to say is that yes uh, it's changed the way that universities are incentivised the dialogue it's changing but now we need to look at industry and actually make sure that industry also uh, change their culture and actually engage uh, uh, and there's a mutual framework for these collaborations between industry um, and, and universities for the yeah benefit of both
1: so much of what we've just been talking about is in the fourth agenda item yes. of the report around research and development with a big focus on translation and collaboration. Alan or Bill, are there any points that you've put forward for government to consider to take that national innovation and science agenda forward to improve, further improve collaboration and translation?
2: Well, yes, we have. Um, I guess it segues into this imperative number two, doesn't it, about industry and uh, in particular incentives for... I mentioned in the introduction that the through line of our report actually is all about lack of investment by business in R&D and innovation. So I I agree with Petra's comment about let's look to business rather than just universities. Um, And uh, so how do you drive more attention to innovation by business. Um, we have in existence now a, a government incentive called the Research Development Tax Incentive, RDTI, um, which accounts for 85% of all government incentives for business innovation and R&D spend. Uh, it's what's called an indirect tax scheme, so it's agnostically available to any company that can claim their eligible R&D expenditures and it's broken into two parts Um, for smaller companies there's a rebate of cash call it roughly 40% of R&D spent by the small business under 20 million in sales volume companies can be refunded is refunded so it's a very uh, cash uh, it's actually by international standards when we did the research uh, quite generous as a program And it is producing additionality, that is, activity beyond business as usual, and indeed uh, accounts for those sorts of companies are spending a very high level of their total expenditures on R&D. We want more of that. The larger companies, however, are in the over 20 million sales category of companies uh, benefit from a tax offset. Uh, a tax deduction, a premium deduction for R&D spend that they enjoy off a deduction for next year's taxable income. And that part of the program is sort of okay, much less additionality when you look at it. Um, and overall, the, 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 the review that was done earlier by Finkel, Ferris and Fraser, the fondly referred to 3F's review, uh, said, um, look, it's not a bad scheme. It should be improved. Uh, if you want it to be sustainable, let's make sure it's, it's got good integrity, that it speaks to, it, it it's measurable against additionality and spillover criteria. And so we've come up with a number of recommendations about that to tighten it, to improve it. To your question, one of the things we want to add to that program is called a collaboration premium which will encourage larger companies, it's a carrot, not a stick, to go out to universities and other research instos and find out what's happening and also enjoy the premium offset if they recruit PhDs in the first three years of their activity. I think Petra said before, Alan did, we have a shocking stat on recruitment of PhDs by industry in this country compared to our OECD competitors. Like, you know, a huge difference. We just don't do it, basically. Uh, I exaggerate again to make the point, but very little seeking of PhDs. So we we would hope that that sort of collaboration premium will drive more activity by business with, with the research community. Over time, we would like to see, the board would like to shift Um, the balance, to rebalance indirect tax incentives to business with more direct incentives. So, What is a direct incentive? Well a direct is um, not a tax specific one Uh, it's things like the export market development grant scheme in other words if you think exporters are a good proxy for international competitiveness and uh, innovation activity like we do um, and you look at that that program and you look at the stats and it's working why not have more of it that's one direct measure Co- cooperative research centers
1: is another uh, and and uh, uh um, so the industry growth centers would industry be, growth okay.
2: centers would fit that so these are uh, sort of more uh, they play to the strengths the competitive sectors that you think you've got a chance at to go with uh, is it picking winners? Because that's always the next question, Jim, uh, by us. No, not really. We don't like picking losers if we can avoid it, but it is just playing to your strengths. We're not singling out individual companies or executives or whatever. It's saying here are sectors that we're already seeing are internationally competitive, are proving through activities and collaboration, uh, appetite, etc. Let's do more of that. Over time, uh, and out to 230, rebalance those sorts of incentives and hopefully drive business activity remarkably higher than what we've currently got.
1: And a, Petra, is this the sort of agenda that you want to see or are there things that, when you look around the world, need to be done but they're not in, the, not in this agenda?
3: Look, uh Every agenda has to adapt to its environment, and yes, we can be inspired by some things that we see around the world. One thing that I know that you have been inspired by, which I was really happy to see, was the SBIR, uh, the small business grants around challenges that you've got in the U.S., um, and I know that it's it's modeled on that, isn't it, Bill? Or am I? Yes. Yes. The the the, 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 I why we call it. Uh, yeah.
4: So I can add to that. So the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program, started in 1983 in America and it's had bipartisan... Do you know the word bipartisan? It's had bipartisan support (laughs) since 1983 (laughs) to now. It's run continuously. It's a multi-billion dollar program that sets... Procurement challenges for small businesses, and they have to come up with innovative solutions. Through that, they supply the government, but they have the full patent rights to go out and commercialize the product. And it's just fantastically successful. We've got a pilot running in Australia called BRIR, the Business Research Innovation Initiative. It's truly equivalent to the SBIR. And I speak with passion because in 1983, I started a company in America. In 1986, I got an SBIR grant, and that enabled us to do something that we wouldn't have otherwise done a really radical approach to making a, a scientific instrument that allowed you to measure the electric electrical activity in individual brain cells to a level of, ex, of exquisite precision that was beyond what anybody had been able to do and i wouldn't have done it without the sbir it wasn't a lot of money but it was play money in a sense i wouldn't have gone that route without that money and that became a hugely successful product line for us so the the benefit is multiplicative
3: it's it's pretty good it's awesome but there are also some things i'm less happy with i guess and i have to represent the companies that are in my incubator and i suppose if you're a life science company you wouldn't want anyone to muck around with the r&d tax rebate scheme simply because uh you will spend maybe ten 10 years developing a drug and you'll spend an awful lot of money and you won't make any revenue and so you really need that tax uh, R&D tax uh, incentive to be able to come through and now I understand that it's going to be capped at four million dollars which is uh, very controversial in this particular sector and I know that Alan has an answer for me as to why I shouldn't be so concerned about this. I am concerned because I hope that it doesn't mean that we're not going to see any more clinical trials in Australia and that we leave that pipeline development to large multinational companies. Uh, I'd hate to see no more vaccines, no more drugs being developed in Australia. Who uh, wants to take it on?
2: I have to speak to it too. So there's about eleven thousand, thirteen thousand companies in total in the RDTI. Eleven thousand of which are in the RDTI
4: st- is the research and development yeah, scheme,
2: and only eight percent
3: being life sciences companies, right? that benefit yeah, be from it, than I Yeah, be ten
2: percent, and I'll come to that. Um, If I can, but the of the let's call 11,000 small companies, smaller companies, uh, are in the cashback scheme. Uh, On the stats we did at the four million annual cap, it might affect something like I don't know, 20 to 30 of those companies out of 11,000. Now, uh, if a company is capped at four million a year, it means they're spending at least ten million on R&D and we've proposed a 40 million aggregate cap, as you know it could take 10, could be 20 years that they could take to get to that 40 million mark, most of them would never get to it by the stats, but if they did they then only qualified for the tax offsets against profits ahead, so Um, At some point, the taxpayers or the program, we've got to hope these companies do become profitable and do pay taxes or at least can expand and can reinvest their bucks and employ people and so on. So that's one response. The second is on the clinical trials front, you know, we've also formed a biomedical translation fund which has got a 500 million pool for fresh venture capital subscribed half by government, half by the super funds which is great news, patient capital at last in there and that is aimed at clinical trials of molecules and devices uh, where we haven't seen the money to date, it's a whole new boost for that and it is happening, they're on their 10th deal already. So that's started since NISA, and it's underway. So, Petra, we hear you, but um,
4: I've said enough. Uh, I, I agree enough with, Petra, with everything Bill said, and I'll just add that it's, it's hard to feel totally sympathetic because... It's a 40% rate, so you need to spend $10 million a year on eligible R&D in order to be able to get this benefit. Eligible means in Australia. Now, the companies I speak to that are spending at that level are also doing R&D and running trials in other countries, and they have other administrative expenses. So a company that's at the level of meeting of of being um, entitled to four million dollars cash rebate from the government they're probably spending at 25 million dollars a year all up which means they have serious backers and at some point the backers have to take some responsibility
3: I guess I'm just yep. a little bit concerned about this sector as well, just because one of the national missions, which, and I, I, I agree with it, genomics, that's that's fantastic and health. Uh, but then, of course, I also know that Essex are how you qualify an uh, early stage startups. So you need to be qualified as an early stage um, startup in order to, for your investor to get the tax offset. Uh, now you have to spend a million dollars for that. Uh, If you spend more than a million dollars, you're no longer a small business. Now, a lot of my companies, probably 90% of them, would spend more than that simply because of the nature of the business. So it means that their investors are not actually entitled to that tax offset, which means that it's really hard to raise money for that particular category of business and not having the R&D tax rebate to the extent they used to. I'm worried about the impact that that might have going into the future.
1: Well, thanks all three of you for what I feel is a a little vignette into the smoke-filled rooms in which these sort of deals get hammered out between uh, industry and government and it sounds like there's going to be a lot more of that in the future if you're successful because there's going to be a lot more activity on both sides. I'm just aware of time and what I wanted to propose is that I think for us and potentially for you one of the great things about these events is the opportunity to have direct interaction between the broader group and the panel. And so what I was proposing to do is uh, just to very quickly ask the panellists to take one or two minutes max just to summarise anything that we haven't touched on that is in that agenda that you think people ought to know about and then if we can turn over to questions. So, for example, we haven't touched on the culture culture ambition. We haven't said much about government government services.
3: Can I start? Yeah. I just realised we haven't actually touched uh, much on talent uh, and that is probably my biggest issue. Uh, My biggest issue, i.e. the issue of the companies that I represent here today and the deep tech cluster, and that is uh, what's recently been done to the 457 visa. These companies need skilled labour to be able to scale. And um, there are 400 people that are currently in my incubator and we've just lost about 50 of them. They had to go back home because of the uh, revisions to the 457 visas. I do think that we need to do something about that urgently because uh, it is so important. Uh, The entrepreneurship visa, I recently had somebody have uh, been trying to work through it took a year for it to be approved um, that is just not acceptable we do need to look at that we do need to try and fix it and it's something we didn't talk about
1: you're not the first person i've heard making those claims bill no we agree with
2: petra and we have made submissions to minister dutton directly personally and for isa about that because on the evidence we see you know the high-end talent that you're focused on and i am uh, we are are um, uh, job multipliers. They are not job takers b- on the evidence. They mentor, they train, they bring skills that we currently don't have. Uh, and uh, so um, it's something that's uh, critical. To
3: and not uh, to imp- interrupt your building. It's not just about jobs. It's, like you said, mentor and skills. And that goes into the research as well, the universities. These researchers need these mentors and uh, you know, to, to upskill them as well. And the fact that we're now losing out on them, I think, is really, really... Um, yeah it's it's terrible, and we need to do something about it. And I've got all the stats to back it up, by the way, if you want some stats from me. Right. I'm happy to give them to you.
4: We'll take them, you don't have to right. convince Bill or I, we totally agree, so I'll just mention something we haven't discussed today. Um, all research depends on having modern scientific instruments, and you know you do some research on a modern scientific instrument, you learn more because of what you learned you work out how to design the next generation of those instruments okay and then the instruments that you're using exist at multiple levels it's the smallish ones that run in individual labs there's fairly big ones that an institution like a university might buy and then there are really big things like the synchrotron or the down in Melbourne or the uh, research reactor in Lucas Heights or the national marine vessel that the CSIRO runs that are way beyond the ability of individual institutions or even clusters of institutions to purchase. We call that the national research facilities and we've had enormous investment through the 2000s and to, to about 2011 in national research facility, billions of dollars. But th- it's stopped. And so, for the last five or six years, we've had no investment, there's been a hiatus. But the world of science, the world, the challenges have improved. So even if that equipment is being kept viable, it's no longer fit for purpose. Think of a laptop. You could have a perfectly functional laptop, but if it's four years old, you don't want it. And so there's a need for us to reinvest at the very high level of hundreds of millions of dollars per year in national research facilities. It's something we're trying to push through. It's mentioned as one of the recommendations in the ISA plan. Um, Write to your congressmen, as they would say in America, please.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Alan. Well, let me now turn to questions then. Thank you to some of of you who... uh, sent us questions in advance and let me try to summarize a couple of those we had several questions about climate change one of the questions said do you agree does the panel agree that our current atmosf- and and projected atmospheric gas uh, greenhouse gas concentrations mean that we face a civilizational existential threat and does isa's recommendation map a path for australia to play its part in solving this crisis
2: Pinkle will be the best one to answer i personally uh do uh share a, a view pretty close to that and I guess we haven't talked about national missions but we did put up a strong case for the uh, an, a, a, a <coughs> a, a, an engineering and adaptation uh, approach to the uh, possible extension and saving of the Great Barrier Reef and that wasn't about crown of thorns or runoffs of fertilisers and so on, all of which are problems, it was actually about the impact of climate change, temperature rises and acidification in the waters, particularly North Reef, that killed, on the expert's advice, roughly up to 50%. didn't just muck around with it, it killed huge chunks Uh, and we have to take a, a lateral approach to try and you know, hope either that we can get an adaptation approach to, to, to with thermal hardening and other resourcing to promote the life of that reef uh, and or maybe one day temperatures, God help us, might actually fall and we're in a position to restore and, and go on with the reef. So, you know, that is some hard evidence of an answer to that person's
4: question that we... we the, the, the first part of climate, I'd add, of course we recognise the impending an enormous problem there's another national mission which we call the hydrogen city let me describe the where this fits in so climate change of course is driven by global warming global warming is driven by carbon dioxide emissions and equivalent greenhouse gases let's just focus on carbon dioxide and if you ignore all the little bits there are four major sectors of the economy that contribute 100 percent if you ignore the little bits contribute all of the carbon dioxide the biggest by far is just electricity generation believe me i know about electricity generation uh, we will with time it'll take us several decades we will decarbonize the electricity system it's inevitable even if there are some who want to resist it it will happen because of the economics the opportunities from rampant technological change with that decarbonized electricity if we then produce a lot more than we currently produce we can look at the other three sectors one of them is transport we can absolutely decarbonize transport by converting to electric cars hydrogen-powered cars and um, we'll leave it at, at, and trucks and everything else uh, the third the next one is agriculture I'm leaving that out it's too hard unless we all become vegans I don't know what the solution is for agriculture But the fourth and final one that most people tend to forget is called direct combustion. That's just using natural gas in the pipes in the city of Sydney, in the pipes in the city of Melbourne and Adelaide and Hobart, all that natural gas gas to heat our houses, to heat our libraries, to heat our office buildings, to heat the kilns in which we make bricks. That natural gas is methane, CH4. It's a carbon carbon based fossil fuel so when you turn on your stove or heat your house you're emitting carbon dioxide and that's one of the biggest emitters if we can use electricity through electrolysis to make hydrogen and use that hydrogen to replace the natural gas the methane gas we can eliminate the emissions from one of the four big sectors of our economy and a prototype a proof of concept which we call the hydrogen city national mission is
1: one of the national missions in the isa report thank you let's open it up there's a, num- a number of very interesting questions so perhaps we'll take them in a bunches of three there were two on that side one down the back and towards the middle
0: hi uh, my name's Olivia. olivia um, following on from that uh, previous question I was really excited about those two national missions that you talked about when I read the report, and I'm not going to pretend that I read it very carefully, but those stuck out to me partly because the whole idea around the national missions of having something that's a long-term goal, that's high ambition, that people can understand and get behind, that really crosses a whole lot of different aspects of effort and research and expertise and technology feels like a big piece of what's missing when we talk about innovation in Australia. And I was a little concerned that we didn't get to it until the questions, but I'm glad that we have. Having said that, with those two missions in particular, um, the fact that climate change sort of emerged through those, even though it wasn't, um, uh, you know, the reason why the report was being done, also I, I found really encouraging. So I'm really interested. How are those sort of being prosecuted now in the in the way that a report is being put out there and um, hopefully being taken up by government?
1: Hold off and take another one. So it's right in front of you, and then there's somebody down the back thank you. My question is about in preparing your report, you must have looked at other countries who are higher up the league tables than we are, and it's the names of the countries you mentioned seem to have more confidence in one way or another in the role of taxpayers funding things and governments doing it. So you think about the US, about the grant scheme you mentioned or the immense investment in technology from Defence, or Israel similarly or in Singapore, a much higher commitment from government to get involved in a more different way than is common in our culture. So I wondered if you'd just like to comment on the kind of core of our political culture the small government agenda um, which leaves a bit of a gap to do the things that you've recommended thank you and then just towards the back and then we'll we'll do a we'll do another round
5: well, uh, my name's richard Shute, and i'm the uh, director of customer-led innovation at uh, the national australia bank Uh, My question relates to the whole um, narrative around um, innovation. Um, The head of uh, MIT's innovation labs talks about innovations, all about uh, problem solving. And if you think about uh, Clayton Christensen from Harvard, he talks about jobs to be done. There was a lot of discussion today around what I call sort of inputs, which is technology, knowledge, research and scientific instruments. But how much focus are we actually focusing on problem solving? And just to sort of make that real. Um, If I think about one of the big issues we have in Sydney, um, one of the key issues that we're all facing into is the amount of time people in Western Sydney travel to work every day. And that has a whole range of externalities on people's health, on the social fabric of Western Sydney, the economy and so forth. Yet we have a narrative that seems to be dominated by the solutions of technology one, when part of the solution could be simply around having large organisations move their offices to Western Sydney, Uh, creating local areas and parks and so forth so um, you know I I think there's a tremendous opportunity here to sort of reframe the narrative away from the inputs to one around developing a problem-solving culture that expands the potential solutions to the problems.
1: terrific three great questions so the first one around that what's happening with these national missions are they just a thought bubble or are they being uh, developed further
2: well, why don't I take that one? It was it Olivia. That's no, great. Okay. Um, great question, and and I'm glad we got to it. Um, we took as a board the view that the great science and technology and problems to be solved um, opens up the opportunity for moonshots. We call them national missions, not to be over the top. Um, and the first one was, in fact, looking at healthcare because we've got a quintessentially wonderful. Health and medical research sector in this country, in terms of its capability, its clinical platforms included, and its uh, emergingly great commercialization as well, and as it happened, uh, a an expanding capability in genomics—not just the equipment, but the people and the pathology that goes with it, etc. And so we looked at the healthcare system, and you know, coalesced with people that know more about it than than certainly I ever would Um, and the opportunity for genomics and precision medicine if integrated into our healthcare system to actually propel health outcomes of lasting and long-term significance was very exciting. We're already the number six roughly in the world in terms of longevity at reasonable cost, so it's 82 and a half years at about 4700 bucks a head, if you believe the numbers, but it's really well positioned in, in, that, in those longevity stakes in reasonable health, why not have a crack at number one becomes the national mission, why not see what this health medical research sector of ours, collaborating with others of course in genomics, in this huge new thrust of data and knowledge to drive earlier diagnostics, prevention, not just looking for cures, but cures, integrating this data with the th- phenomics data that we have, that people present with, and, and so on, is such an opportunity. And uh, a, 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 as are, you didn't single that one out, but the fact that we got some climate change stuff through, in spite of fact in spite of people perhaps not wanting to talk about it quite so much, obviously, there are three very interesting national missions. And to your question about, well, how are we going to get traction, we've already got a commitment on the feasibility funding for the reef, our our definition of the reef mission. Uh, That's a start. Uh, On the health one, I think we're reading the tea leaves correctly. I think the government will commit the hundreds of millions that's needed to make a difference there, uh, probably through the Medical Research Future Fund. It will need co-investment, Percy, from your old friends of the States uh, and from philanthropy to really make a big dent over the next decade. Uh, but I think it'll happen. I really do think it'll happen. And, and, and if Alan keeps the advocacy going on the hydrogen front, that could happen too. There's a lot
4: going on just very briefly a quick update on that when it came to the health mission and the great barrier reef i think through the isa report we've you know put the spotlight on what needs to be done which is fantastic but there was a, a lot of awareness in government of the problem when it comes to the hydrogen city national mission it's brand new certainly at the federal government level some of the state governments are starting to get it in particular south australia but the federal government level no awareness whatsoever so the uh, advance in the last couple of weeks i've been invited by the federal energy minister to prepare a briefing for the all of the energy ministers state territory and federal ministers which we'll do in the next few months and that'll you know open their awareness of where the the potential is so it's
1: a really good first step to be invited to enter the door of the coag energy council Right, and then the second question around whether our small government ideology, let's call it that, the 24.7% revenue to GDP cap, for example, the federal, is that holding us back as inappropriate in a world where we've got this apparently large opportunity around government engaged innovation?
2: I've certainly got a view, but Petra, you, you, would you like well, to... Well, you, you
3: know what my is going to be anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I that. no I, just some stats at the start, though. You know, we've got... The government spends... Part of the question was, does, is government going to step up and, you know, do we have the right numbers? Right? You know, we spend 0.62% <laughs> of GDP as government money, okay, uh, in a total of 2% of GDP being spent on innovation R&D. We actually see the government climbing to about 0.7%. We're not looking for excluding the national missions to about 0.7% of GDP over the next number of years, but business getting closer to 2%. So there's a huge under there is a considerable underinvestment in the R&D and innovation uh, stuff. If you want to be an innovative country, if you want to be in the top quartile of competitive nations. The answer is you've got to be prepared to do more. Uh, that was part of the question. I'm not sure if it was anyone, but.
3: Yeah, you know. look, I agree, obviously.
2: But mainly business. Government doing it smarter and better and facilitating, the business has got to step up with the help of academia, etc. and make this big change over the next decade I was just going to
4: say it's not as Bill's saying it's not just the amount the government spends on business R&D it's everything the government does one of our recommendations is for the government to modernise another one is for the government to think about its procurement policy look at America yeah they put a huge amount of money into the SBIR and DARPA and lots and lots of direct investment into mission driven business R&D but they also have a gigantic military industrial complex that stimulates a huge amount of R&D
3: by the corporates. On that, I'm just quickly going to interject. I just came back from a trip around Europe and Sweden, which is my my home country, and I started thinking, why is it uh, if I go to Sweden, I go to Uppsala, which is one of our university towns where Pharmacia came from originally, and I see this big cluster of biotech companies that have popped up all around there. Pharmacia is now off doing other things around the world, but there's a cluster there. Same if you go to Barcelona, Switzerland, around Novartis. There is a cluster there. I don't see a cluster around Resmed nor do I see a cluster around Cochlear or CSL. Why is it that our homegrown companies don't feel compelled to give back? I don't know why they don't have that culture. I, but inter- I'm asking, I don't know why that is, but it's an observation. That pay for, that pay back, I just don't see that happening and I think that's really disappointing. I don't know what we can do to change it, but I think it's something that's lacking.
1: And then the third question was around, Have, in, in some sense, is the report underdone a different way to think about innovation. Problem solving, actively engaging with, if you like, the non-business or the non-pipeline aspects. How would you respond to that, authors?
2: Well, I'd start by saying the whole section on national missions and defining how we bring forward further national mission ideas much wider around the community is all about identifying huge problems, stroke opportunities, and how you solve them. So, you know, that's certainly been in our focus. Um, I loved your one about the the traffic example because you know yeah, maybe a congestion tax like Singapore would make a difference much quicker than 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 than, than even uh, Alan's uh, hydrogen uh, combustibles um, but you know we've got to do it all I think um,
4: The only thing I'd add is that what the ISA report is trying to do is, give government a lot of ways forward that are a coherent package of recommendations and they're really quite thoughtful and ideally the government will adopt, if not all at least the majority of them over the next one or two years and that will facilitate the right sort of thinking Um, you mentioned the head of MIT saying that I don't know if the definition of innovation was solving problems or something like that. I have a personal credo. it sounds totally simplistic, but not everybody shares it. There's always a better way. It doesn't matter what you're doing, no matter how well you think you' are doing it, there's always a better way. And when I had my own company for twenty three years in America, we were our biggest competitor. We kept replacing our own products with the next generation because we knew there was always a better way. if we can convey that to, the government and entrepreneurs. And believing that doesn't mean doing thought bubble type things. That's another thing we've got to avoid. In a better way doesn't mean just different for difference sake. Innovation is doing things differently and doing things better. And that's a whole sentence. Just doing things differently, that is not innovation. It's doing
1: things differently and doing them better. Now, we're all about to turn into pumpkins. My question for you, Megan we started at five past can we run can we do one more round of three questions assuming people have got some appetite there's a question right down the front on the right and then right down the back on the left megan and then this one here on the side i'm sorry we might have to catch the others excuse me great well let's let's bunch them up in threes
0: thanks so much kate cooper for uh, head of innovation at westpac um Bill, you mentioned the term complacency, and I'm and I'm kind of every day walk the corridors um, of my employer and kind of walk into and, and face into that complacency and that complacent pros- prosperity, and I'm just really interested to hear from you guys around you know how do we create this sense of urgency this burning platform over and above what we're already doing that allows someone like me who absolutely buys into everything the panel said today to really go back to my exec and and and, um continue to challenge the way i challenge them every day great question
1: and right it was right down the back third row from the back
3: Hi, Siobhan Sutherland-Rogers. I'm actually uh, on the Australian Institute of Training and Development. And I, yes, STEM is an issue, but let's put that aside. Uh, What I'd like to know is what seems to be glaringly obvious to me, personally, is the connectivity issues of this country. Internet speeds are dropping. Uh, I would have thought this is pretty obvious for most, certainly corporates, let alone public sector. Yet there seems to be a very deep reluctance to stand up and look, focus a bit more longer term than, say, the next five years. And if you don't have connectivity issues resolved, that's not a great sense of confidence in terms of innovation in a country like Australia.
1: Terrific. And then third from the back, from the front. Thanks, James Dalton from GemMaker. (coughs) I just wanted to pick up on two points that... uh, one that Bill mentioned and one that Alan mentioned about um, the motivation to innovate or, or to do science-based innovation is around security, and and also the, the degradation of our vocational training. And I just wonder um, what can be done or or what needs to be done to improve our ability to deliver on a lot of a lot of the innovations we. Uh, we make in terms of our manufacturing capability or our our capacity to be self-sufficient with the ideas that we develop. Great, thank you. So the first question around how to fight corporate complacency. I'm happy to start on on that one. Um,
4: We sort of touched on it in some of our other comments, we are living in a world where technological change driven by innovation it's rampant let me just give you a couple of examples electricity you know i led the review on the electricity sector the reason why we've had the troubles that we've had is that our everybody blames the government but you've got to share the blame it's the government and the regulators they've been complacent we had a fabulous electricity system it was all built by state governments we had lots and lots of coal we had hydro They privatized it and it just ran fantastically because it had excess capacity. And we sat there complacently watching that excess capacity disappear, watch it get undermined by new technologies such as solar and wind and batteries, and didn't get on the front foot to try to integrate those new technologies into the system and we have suffered for that so rampant technological change that drove the price of solar down faster than our regulators anticipated think about the back i think you said you come from westpac um we have probably one of the most advanced banking systems in the world you know you know that when you travel you can't use pins in some countries you still got a sign a country called america you can't do tap and pay in most countries we're fantastic, but new approaches in America, such as Apple Apple Pay uh, and the contact system, are going to represent enormous challenges for our existing big complacent banks. So, you, you know, there's no such thing as being complacent and seeing what you've got remain as it is. If you're complacent, you will deteriorate in terms of your positioning. So, all we have to do is think a bit towards the future and recognize that what we have now will be undermined by the international rampant technological change.
1: Thanks, Alan. Next question was around some of, if you like, more, our more basic productivity challenges with internet speeds being one example. Why aren't there, you know, why wasn't there a stinging rebuke and critique of those sort of infrastructure failings?
2: Yeah, I think that might have got dumbed down in the wording. We do mention the problem because we went around the stakeholders and bang, you know, uh, and very dramatically, of course, um, and partly by sector, but certainly by sort of postcodes. Um, many might get lucky with 5G as a as some sort of solution for that, if we're lucky, over the next few years. Um but we 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 do call it out in the report, and we have spoken verbally about it with policymakers. They get it. They know it can't be put under the rug. Uh, no solution yet from us, other than push and maybe 5G. I'd like to tell a story, if I could, that goes from that to the third question. Try it. Get, try it on us. Well, it's a small one. It, it's a company called Tech Store because this question about, you know, how do you move to science-based and what do you do in the manufacturing of the new ideas and products, etc. Here's this little company in Melbourne going nowhere. Um, And they start, they were making some nappy products and that wasn't very successful. And uh, they then said, well, we think we can come up with an absorption fabric that really is a breakthrough. And they worked with Syro to do that and uh, and have the IP jointly. And they had to reinvest in the telemarine factory with new new kit, completely new equipment. To get to the end of the story, they now make hundreds of... They make the absorption fabrics for Kimberly Clark, not just for Australian production, but around the plants worldwide. Hundreds of... You mightn't like this product, but hundreds of millions of... Of, of nappies. At least they're smaller and more efficient and still probably going to the same dumps, but it's a fantastic success story. And their existing manufacturing workforce, they've still got the same number, a slightly increased employment, different jobs, retraining. So they've survived through innovation, they're export competitive, they've got an increased workforce at higher value add. Average pay—it's a great story of what's possible, and 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 we're seeing more of it, and it is possible, um, and that's what we're driving for. Great,
1: right. thank you, Bill. Petra, any—do you have any thoughts on that very challenging final question around connectivity? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. I can talk about connectivity because I work. I do a lot of work uh, in ag tech, and it is a problem because there are so many technologies we could roll out to our farmers, but there's no connectivity, so we can't really do it. So that that is an issue. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, it's very. Um, there's a huge agenda here. Now, again, just by virtue of uh, keeping our implicit contract with whoever you're having dinner with tonight, I'd like to declare victory on this evening, and to do it by thanking you, Bill, Petra, and Alan so much for taking the time and to thank Thank all of you for joining us for what Mm -hmm. for what i found a very stimulating discussion so thanks again and for those who posted questions rest assured the panelists do have those questions in print form and we'll be reflecting on them this evening at dinner i'm sure thank
3: you